like to welcome you to faith and to our message series on the seven letters uh, to the churches in Revelation. Uh, we've launched this series a few weeks ago where it's Christ who writes to these believers uh, to let them know that they have not been forgotten, that he is with them, and that he is going to fulfill his promises, and that he will return to bring them to glory. <clears throat> And so our focus is on the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, and particularly to the letters to the seven churches of Asia. Uh, <clears throat> we ask the question that if Jesus were to write a letter to Faith Christian Fellowship, what would he say? How would he speak his heart to this church? What would he commend us for? What would he comfort us in? What would he correct us on? And what would he challenge us to? And last week, Pastor Stan unfolded more of the Apostle John's experience in meeting the glorified, risen, and reigning Christ who gave John these letters. Uh, and what Pastor Stan said were fresh words with fresh vision and fresh calling to God's anxious people. And so as we turn to the first letter to the church of Ephesus, let us ask God to... to uh, give us eyes and ears to hear and to see his word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you endure patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this I have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the, one, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Healthy, healthy relationships require work. They require attention and focus. There was a study some time ago, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau found that most U.S. marriages don't last 25 years. It is said that for the first time since World War II, America's married couples are more likely to have split, separated, or divorced by the 25-year mark than to have stayed together. And as I say those words, I know that this is not just a statistic. This is some painful history, and that many of us in this place know the pain of divorce. One husband who did not tend to nurturing the love of his 10-year marriage eventually found a cold and unresponsive wife. In the process of asking her and prodding her one day about what was wrong, she said quietly in almost a whisper, I don't care anymore. I hate this marriage. It's boring me to death. I give up. I know biblically I have to stay with you, so I'll stay. But I can't promise any emotion. 
don't expect any response or any real feeling from me because I don't have anything left. He said that when he heard those words, it was like a cold steel sound of a vault door slamming shut, and he felt this deafening, suffocating silence. In that silence, he heard the echo of past charges. You don't really care about this marriage. You never act as if my words are important. You never really listen. You either interrupt or you don't let me talk at all when we're with other people. You never hold my hand anymore. You never touch me unless you want something more. I don't want things. I want you. Don't give me crumbs. As we come to this first letter of Christ to the church of Ephesus, we find not just the language of a Savior and of the Lord of the church, but we find the language of a groom to his bride, a husband to his beloved wife. You have forsaken your first love. And Jesus says this to his church at Ephesus. Jesus has been the faithful husband, but his bride at Ephesus has allowed her love to grow cold. She is in the relationship. She is going through the motions. She is functioning. She's doing a lot of good things, but her heart is not engaged. She is existing in the relationship, but her heart is not enthralled. And so we find in this letter that Jesus calls the Ephesians back to wholehearted love. He calls each of these uh, letters in the churches of Ephesians in Asia to focus on various things. Uh, he exposes their strengths and their weaknesses of the churches. But these words of Jesus are not just for the church of Ephesus. They are the words of the church for all believers. They are given to all of us. And actually at the end of the, each letter, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so all of us are, re, are responsible to hear these words of Jesus. And Jesus is telling us that we must take inventory of our relationship with him. Jesus is calling us to and encouraging us to evaluate our love to him. And he calls and he wants all of us, all of those who are believers in all the churches, to a wholehearted, total, no-holds-barred love for him. You know, John Stott, who wrote the commentary on this, mentions that these seven letters to these churches represent seven different marks of the faithful and living church. It's interesting to me that the very first church that he mentions here is the church of Ephesus, and the very first mark is the mark of love. The greatest of these is love, as we find from Corinthians. Jesus calls us back to our first love, and the way he does this is by revealing to us his caring, passionate attention to us, by his commendation to us, by his confrontation to us, and the compelling call that he has for us. And so Jesus, he encourages the church by showing his caring passion for uh, the church of Ephesus. And he says that in verse 1 about these words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. And we find in the last verses of chapter 1, uh, Jesus tells what the seven stars are that he holds and what are these seven golden lampstands. The seven stars, he says, are the angels 
the angels or the messengers. And, and there's been different interpretations of exactly who these angels are, what these messengers are. Uh, I think Pastor Stan said last week that he believed that they were pastors or they were the, the overseers of those particular churches. Well, the scriptures certainly tell us that angels have been assigned to every single believer. You know that? In, the, in Hebrews chapter uh, 1, are not all angel spirit, ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? You know, there's a spiritual song that says, All day, all night, angels watching over me, my Lord. Uh, there's spiritual truth there. Each believer, each one of you who has confessed Christ, has ministering spirits, specific angels that are watching and are present in your lives. If we could just like open up the spiritual realities that are in this room, uh, we would see angels that have been given to us. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Um, we'll know their names someday in the future. Uh, it's possible that there are special angels that are assigned to particular churches, but this, what is really uh, significant here, however, is that even though Jesus assigns angels to believers and possibly to churches, Jesus comes himself. Jesus comes walking amidst the lampstands. He's walking in the midst of the churches. He's tending to the churches himself. He's patrolling. He's supervising his churches. He is considered the chief shepherd of the sheep, and he is carefully watching and taking everything into account. There's a verse in Proverbs 27, 23. It says, Be sure you know the condition of your flocks. Give careful attention to your herds. Well, Jesus does that. He knows the conditions of his flocks and his herds. Jesus gives careful, detailed attention. Uh, there was a, uh, a recent article about privacy. Uh, is any thing private anymore and it was talking about our digital world and uh, how it's really impossible to protect our personal information what you buy where you go whom you call the websites you visit the emails you send all of that information can be monitored and logged uh, uh, this past week someone was walking past my daughter who was with a group of other people and this stranger just handed her this cell phone that they said that they had found and would she take care of it and so my daughter agreed you know she was friendly and wanted to be helpful and she agreed to take this stranger's phone and she brought it home and of course we're thinking about this uh and we start realizing that phones are tracked right i mean we know that if you have a cell phone your phone can be tracked right now into this sanctuary. And so then we started having these strange feelings. Anyhow, you're, you can't really know what people are doing with the information that they have about you. And so when we hear these, this uh, thought of Jesus walking through, inspecting, surveying the churches, uh, it could possibly give us uh, somewhat of a, a creepy feeling. But Jesus is not a commercial entity attempting to sell you something. Uh, he is not an employer who will fire you. He is not a thief 
seeking to rip, off, rip you off, and he's not a terrorist seeking your destruction. He is the great shepherd. He knows everything about you. He knows the very depths of the foolish things that you and I have done and will do, have, and, uh, and yet he has laid his life down for each of us, each of his sheep. He is the loving husband who has sacrificed and shed his blood for his bride. And so he tends and he watches over us for our good. He knows everything about us. He knows everything about you. But Jesus will never raise your faults and your sins before you to shame you or to disgrace you. For God's word says anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But Jesus raises our sins and he raises our weaknesses before us because he loves us, because he wants to reform us and to teach us and to lead us to the glory that he's destined us for. Before we move beyond this point, you need to know that while Jesus loves us individually, while each one of us should be able to say with Paul in Galatians 2, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, we need to be able to own that personally. Jesus loves more than you. Jesus loves you as part of his bride, his body, his church. Jesus is not just walking among individual believers. He's walking among specific churches in specific cities who are all these true churches throughout the cities of the world, throughout the ages, and they represent God's holy bride, Jesus' holy bride. And what is the church? What is the church that Jesus is concerned about and walking through? Well, we find in Revelation 7 a picture of the church in heaven. It is a great multitude, it says, that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb and crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so the church of God, the church of Christ, is this multinational, multiracial, multilingual, worshiping community of God. It's also the community of saints. It's a community. It's a fellowship of saints. Paul wrote in Ephesus to the saints in Ephesus. They're not saints because they are perfect people. Uh, they are a community of saved sinners whom Christ sanctified. The church is also called the chosen ones, the adopted ones, the church of, the, of adopted sons and daughters who Christ has blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. The church has been called the family of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the community of the firstborn, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, all of these words are describing the church of God, the living God, the city of the living God. And we find in Hebrews, it says, it's a place where thousands upon thousands of angels have gathered in joyful assembly. And it talks about the church as the holy city, the new Jerusalem at the end of Revelation. The church is the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, why have I taken this much time to talk about the church? Because Jesus is passionate for his church. Jesus walks through the lampstands of his churches. He is concerned about their health. He's concerned about its people. It's concerned about its behavior, but it's concerned about his bride. 
And because Jesus is so passionate for his church, so should we. Now, I know that when I talk about the church, for many, we've all been wounded. Some of us here have decided to expose themselves to even being in a church for worship. And you wonder, when, when is this going to go bad? Churches are messed up places. They're fallen places. And yet Jesus is in the business of taking fallen people and messed up people and sinners who are seeking to follow him and to shape them into a beautiful bride. And if Jesus is passionate for his church, if that is his desire, then if we're followers of Christ, then we have to be passionate for his church as well. And our calling as his people is to do all that we can to make the bride of Christ more beautiful, to find our place into the body of Christ, to his church, his passionate bride, in order to make it more beautiful. And he shows us, I believe, how to, to operate within the church. Even in this text, Jesus shows us how to encourage the church, how to commend the church for the things that it is doing well, that it's doing right. And so here Jesus draws us to strengthen our love by commending the things that we're doing right. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered, you've endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. What we find here is that Jesus doesn't start off by correcting his church or this bride in Ephesus. He starts off by commending. He's finding the things that they're doing well at, and he's spending the time encouraging them in those positive things. And how important it is that if you're going to correct someone, if you're going to go to somebody and you have a correction that you know that they need to address, pause, <clears throat> take some time, and think about the positive things, the good things that they're doing, and spend some time encouraging them. You know, I, I watched you. Uh, operate in your relationships, and I've watched you care for people, and, and that's really touched me. Uh, but here's a, something that I think could encourage you to consider. <laughs> Spend some time encouraging those folks. But in order to understand better the church of Ephesus, uh, you should know some things about this, this church of Ephesus and about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the greatest metropolis of Asia. You know, a lot of times in Baltimore, you might see signs on the bench seats, Baltimore, the greatest city in America. <laughs> well, in Ephesus, it was the true. <laughs> it was true. Ephesus had the greatest harbor in Asia, uh, with the roads of the Caster Valley all converging upon it. It was a strategic position as the market of Asia, and it was called the gateway of Asia uh, because it was the first city to the highway of, to Rome. It was the wealthiest of the cities, and it was declared a free city of the Roman Empire. And it was an honor. Uh, this city didn't have to have Roman garrisons because they were self-governed. Uh, these were all the privileges of the city of Ephesus. It held the famous games of Asia that attracted people from all over the region. When uh, some of you wear Nike athletic gear, well, the, Nike was a god of victory. And uh, that symbol all started in, uh, in, in Ephesus. 
uh, it was a highly mixed city of Greeks and Jews and natives of, of Athens and natives of the surrounding country. And because of these things, Paul saw Ephesus a, as a very strategic a city, and he spent three years there, longer than any other city he had uh, spent time in. Uh, when he got kicked out of the synagogue, uh, he went next door, it says, to the lecture hall of Tyrannius, and uh, he worked in the mornings on tent making, he supported himself, and in the afternoons he would go and teach at this famous hall of Tyrannius where the word of the Lord went forth throughout the region. And it says that he did this for two years there. And we find that the hearts of the Ephesians uh, became very uh, sensitive and transformed. And it says that uh, many of those who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. And, and they estimated the worth of those scrolls, of those sacred writings that were sorcery writings, was worth about $3 million. And it says in the word of the Lord grew uh, widely and spread in power. Uh, and there were these great conversions, and people's lives were being changed. And there was, uh, in Ephesus, there was this, the god, uh, the goddess Artemis, or, the, uh, or Diana of the Ephesians. And there was this great temple, Artemis, uh, that was one of the seven wonders of the world, with 120 of these, uh, these ivory columns. Uh, it was an amazing uh, place to be. It was a center of so much culture, but it was also a center of temple prostitution and the worship of Artemis. And, and so we find that this was the city that Paul had planted and Paul spoke at. And there were many things to strength that, that were commendable about the church of Ephesus that Jesus uh, commends. They endured hardship. Uh, I'm sure that they uh, persevered in the midst of, of the call to worship the emperor, and they did not. And they endured persecution, and they did many deeds of justice and mercy. But one of the things that they did do that he commends, that they, they, they guarded the truth. And they, it's, Paul warned them in, in uh, Acts chapter 20, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth and draw away disciples after them. And I believe that the Ephesians and the Ephesian elders were very careful about false doctrine infiltrating uh, their assembly. And so Jesus commends them for their commitment to uh, orthodoxy. They, they were like the Bereans who examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul would say was right. Bishop uh, the Bishop Ignatius of Antioch wrote about the Ephesians, you all live according to the truth and no heresy has a home among you. And so Jesus is spending time commending the Ephesians about these matters. Now I want to say this about, uh, about the guarding of truth. Um, in the scriptures we have core doctrines that we would consider essential uh, and that are very clear. And then there are some teachings that are unclear and somewhat debatable. And we have to be careful about putting all things in the same category. And some would say on essentials, unity, on the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And I think that there's, uh, there's wisdom in how we address each other. Uh, Paul, or Jesus mentions the Nicolaitans. We don't really know 
what the Nicolaitans' belief was or practices were. The word actually means to conquer uh, the people, or Nicoa means to conquer, Laos means people. And so it's possible that there was a heavy-handed group of leaders that were imposing unbiblical things on people, uh, functioning in, in a very authoritarian uh, framework, um, somewhat cultic in, in some ways. Uh, I used to be in a, when I first, my, the first church I got out uh, when I was in, out of college, I didn't realize that it was really more of a cultic church where these leaders were called apostles, and they were basically um, seeking to enforce uh, non-biblical uh, standards on its people thinking that this was spirituality and I was actually in this body for a season and then I realized that this was false and by the way you're a professed believer and you're in this place in this church each one of you is responsible to assess the truth to assess what's being taught what's being preached you're responsible to, to guard the truth of God it's not just the elders, and they are responsible, but every single member. I mean, so Jesus is placing on us the responsibility to make sure that we're evaluating what's being taught uh, by the Scriptures. So Jesus spends a lot of time uh, commending his bride for the good things uh, that they are doing and they, they, that they are doing. By the way, yesterday I did a marriage for uh, David Morris. He was a kid that grew up in this church, and he married us young lady, wonderful lady by the name of Elizabeth, and uh, they were married in her father's farm, and it was a beautiful wedding, but in the process of their marriage counseling, one of the questions was, who, who were the people or individuals in their lives that, that encouraged them about a good marriage? And they mentioned Ed and Denise Stiles. Uh, they apparently spent a lot of time in their household, because David was good friends with uh, Antonia and, and and, uh, and his sister, um, but it was great to hear that and also to tell Ed and Denise that your marriage has had an impact on this young couple. You know, it's important for you and I to hear how God is using us in the kingdom, and Jesus spends that time uh, doing that here, but Jesus continues to call the church of Ephesus back to a whole heart life. He doesn't just commend he also corrects. And we have this correction because there's an area here that the Ephesians were not doing well in. And he says, yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You know, when you think about Jesus walking through the lampstands, walking through the, the churches, just imagine Jesus is walking through these aisles of this church and he's taken into account. And, of course, he is, actually. You know, it says that in, in, uh, when God created Adam and Eve in the garden, that God would be walking with Adam and Eve uh, in, the, in the end of the day. Uh, and they would have a conversation. Uh, God is in relationship with his people. Uh, we find that um, God enjoys fellowship with his image bearers. Jesus spends time with his disciples on the journeys between the cities, just being with them, camping out, having meals with them, relating to them. But what can happen to 
sincere believers is that they can move away from relationship into religion. Uh, they can move in a way that they get very busy and their relationship with Christ actually suffers. Uh, people can start working very hard at Christian things. Uh, they can suffer hardship. They can do justice. They can engage in mercy. They can have right doctrine. They can do all of these things, but it becomes religious versus working through a relationship. Jesus confronts, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the heights from which you have fallen. And so they drifted into a religion of duty and left their relationship of delight. You know, so I've heard recently that we are not human doings. We are human beings. Uh, but I have to confess to you, as a pastor who tends to be an activist, I have often tended to be more of a human doing than a human being. Uh, I, I haven't rested the way I should. I haven't protected Sabbath keeping the way I should. And, uh, and that has had an impact on my ability just to delight in the relationship with Christ. And so this is very strong uh, language that Jesus gives to uh, the Ephesians. He's not holding any punches. Uh, any punches. Uh, he loves the Ephesians, but he won't leave them in an uncorrected state. And so it is not enough to love God just with your mind and strength. You know, there's other parts. Your heart, with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And so this is the first commandment of God. Uh, and so they've fallen from these heights. And the scriptures tell us that the love of most will grow cold at the end of time. And so Jesus is pointing out to these Ephesians that their love has been growing cold towards him. They were in a marriage, but they weren't in the relationship. And so Jesus writes this love letter to his bride at Ephesus, and he says, I want you back. <laughs> he says, I want all of you back. Uh, the God of the scriptures is often pictured as a bridegroom who woos the bride back to her first love. In Hosea 2, uh, God goes after this fickle, wandering, adulterous Israel, and he says, I am going to allure her. Allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. I will give her her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor, or of gloom, a door of hope. And there she will sing as in the days of her youth, as, as the day she came up out of Egypt. So the God of the Scriptures often presents himself as this groom who's madly in love with his bride. Uh, Isaiah 62 says, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Zephaniah talks about the Lord your God is with you. His mighty safe. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you in his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. We have a God who is enraptured with his bride. He is singing over his bride. John Stott says, The divine lover still sorrows when his love is unrequited and pines for our continuing, deepening, maturing adoration. Love, then, is the first mark of a true and living church. The Christian life is essentially a love relationship to Jesus Christ. And 
This is what we are called to. This is the God of the scriptures, and he's a jealous God. And he will not share his glory, and he will not share his love with any others that he demands and expects and requires and wants from his people. And so Jesus is calling us to this renewed love, and he actually tells us how we're to do that. He says, remember, remember the height from which you have fallen, repent, and do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first. I can, uh, I can remember the things that I did at first when I was uh, courting Maria. You know, I met Maria in this, uh, she was singing in this restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. She was singing the songs that she wrote. And so I, I kind of captured her heart in her poetry and her songs. And, and I was actually pretty well captured by that. Uh, and she was there with another guy. And I had to like be very uh, diplomatic in how I introduced myself to her. Uh, somehow she agreed to go out with me. Uh, but I just remember uh, what happened in my heart as I pursued Maria. And we only had two weeks left when I was, had to go back to seminary in St. Louis. But um, I decided to ask the management of this restaurant if I could, you know, have an opportunity to sing a song to, to Maria before I left. And so I, I wasn't that great of a guitarist or a singer, but I was like, I wanted to display my my heart to this young lady. And so the, the management agreed. <laughs> and so I wrote this very syrupy, you know, song on special friends and, and uh, the management allowed me to do that. And Maria was supposed to be there with this other guy. Uh, and I was all in, I said, I'm gonna do this anyhow. Uh, and apparently by that time, Maria had decided she was going to spend more time with me, and she sent this guy packing, and that was really a great thing. <laughs> and then I, you know, sang this song. Uh, and then I left to go to St. Louis, and at that point, uh, there was no, you know, cell phones. It was just basically Ma Bell, you know. And so you're paying long-distance costs, and literally, if you can imagine, you're paying hundreds of dollars per month for long-distance calls. Uh, which is what I did. And I was writing letters pretty much every single day. And my grades were suffering because of that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I knew that uh, if guys, God was calling me to ask the big question, uh, that this was going to cost me something. There needed to be a sign that I was all in on this relationship. The all, and I was, my father-in-law called me an impecunious seminarian, which meant poor. I was the I, you know, seminarian, I had no money, but I did have one possession that was a treasure to me, and that was my 1968 Mustang Fastback. And I knew that this was the big challenge, and so I sold that Fastback, and I bought my wife this little diamond ring. Uh, and that's what I did at the beginning of our relationship. Like, I pursued her with everything that I had. Um, she, she was, you know, the jewel for me. 
And when we hear this language that Jesus has, you know, do the things that you did at first, you know, he wants our first affections. He wants us to look at him with that delight that we had at first uh, and to sustain that. And I confess to you that, and Maria will confess, <laughs> that that kind of affection hasn't really been sustained over these 37 years. But by God's grace, we're still together. I love my wife. I'm committed to her. And uh, um, this was our 37th year anniversary this week. And we're grateful. We're grateful for that. But, but you know, Jesus, he wants this relationship. He wants a relationship with you. It's not, it's not just about you know, he's not calling you into a religion. He wants a relationship. He wants, he wants you. He doesn't just want what you do. He wants you. He wants all of you. And, uh, you know, we need to be reminded. Uh, we need to be reminded regularly about his love, his undying love for us. And there's a verse in, in Luke, uh, in the Gospel account, where Jesus is gathered with his disciples around that Last Supper, and he says, I have eagerly desired to have this meal with you. I tell you again, you'll not eat of this again until, until you eat of this in, in my kingdom. And we find that Jesus is capturing the hearts of his disciples. They don't fully understand everything. He's getting ready to do the biggest sacrifice ever for them. But Jesus instituted this supper as a living reminder that that love is ours, that he loves you that much, that he wants you to know with the depths of your being that he wants you, that he's coming after you, and that he wants your affections first. He wants your love first. He wants you to have that delight in knowing him first. And so this supper is a reminder, a living reminder of that undying love for us. I'd like to ask the officers to come forward. And who is this supper for? It's for anyone who has repented, who has said, I am deeply sorry for my sins and transgressions against you. I repent of those. I turn from those sins, and I am turning to you, Christ. I am want to follow you with my heart, my life. I want to seek obedience with in uh, following you in, his, in your church, in your bride. I want to be part of making your bride more beautiful. I'm here. This is not Faith Christian Fellowship's table. This is the Lord's table. And so if you've done that and you have claimed Christ and you are welcome to this table, if you haven't, I'd like to ask you to let this pass and to pray that God would reveal himself to you through Christ so that you could come to this table as the beloved son or daughter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you give us this meal is a, a reminder, Lord, we, we are a forgetful people. Uh, there are so many forces in this world that make us wonder and doubt, and we get discouraged. Uh, but, Lord, we come to this meal, and we, we're reminded once again that your love is real, that you really did die, that you shed your blood, that you, your body was given uh, for sinners, for us who believe. And so, God, we pray that you would strengthen us through this meal, that we would walk forth from here with a deeper sense of your love, and that we would have a great delight 
and our relationship with you. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. On the night